every supermodel was walking down. I was like, what is this show? And then and I'm like, what is this soundtrack? And I was just like, oh my God. I was like, is this what a real fashion show is? And my eyes were just like lighting up. I always found it inspiring to find women as a street style photographer that were so comfortable in themselves that they wore what they liked and they aged so gracefully and beautifully and they made the clothes come to life. I have nothing to lose. I should just volunteer myself to them as their new creative director. And I thought, you know, if they say no, it doesn't hurt. My ego will be bruised, but whatever. So I offered myself and they said yes, because they needed someone to come in there and kind of shake things up a bit. Welcome back to Vanessa Wants to Know, where I, Vanessa Hong, get to have conversations that move you. On today's episode, I sit down with Tommy Tan, famed fashion street style photographer and recently turned women's wear designer. Tommy has worked for some of the biggest names in the industry, like GQ, Lane Crawford, Louis Vuitton, and of course, we can't forget his six years of covering fashion weeks for Style.com. In this episode, Tommy goes into his early life of growing up as first-gen Vietnamese Canadian in a small town outside of Toronto, how he discovered fashion at age 13 via his sister, and the crystallizing moment while attending his first European fashion show in 2007 that helped him realize, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. Tommy has had an indelible impact on the industry and how we consume and view fashion. And he's just getting started at 35. For all of these reasons and more, I am so excited to share this conversation with you today. So sit back and enjoy this insightful, inspiring conversation I have with Tommy Tan. We're going to kick off Fashion Month with Tommy Tan. I think it's just really interesting because I think for most people... Even though everyone consumes fashion, whether you go consume at Bergdorf's or you're going to The Gap or you're going to Zara or H&M, you're still a consumer of fashion. Where does that fashion come from? I think a lot of people never really think about that. Mm -hmm. For me, before I entered the industry or started going to shows, I didn't quite understand the machinations either, but that's what Fashion Month is, right? It's a machine. It's a machine. But for our listeners, can you describe casually, like, what is Fashion Month? Like, what is Fashion Week? Like, what's involved? So Fashion Month is a culmination of four weeks in four major cities. So from New York to London to Milan to Paris. And it's where all the designers have their spring, summer, or fall, winter collections where they show to a select group of buyers, press, stylists, Influencers. So that's what Fashion Month is. And it's always six months before these products yeah. go into the stores. And this is, you know, the runway is often the inspiration for what we end up seeing mm-hmm. in high street, mass market places like the H&Ms of the world, like the Zars yeah. of the world. Before we kind of get into the really like thick fashion part of it, I want to go back to the very beginning because I tried to do some research. Like I found some stuff on Mm -hmm. you, but I'm like, I want to hear from you. What was your upbringing like? Like what you grew up in Toronto? So I grew up in Oakville, Ontario, which is a suburb outside of Toronto. I tell people Toronto because it's obviously easier to know where it is. So I I was born in another suburb, but then I moved to Oakville when I was two. So I lived there up until 
two years ago with my parents. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so my parents are Vietnamese, so they immigrated to Canada. My mom first in the 70s and then my dad in the 80s. Him later because of the situation of the Vietnam War. And right. Yeah, I'm a child of, I'm a well, first generation in Canada. I have an older brother and sister, but obviously we had, or I had, sorry, a very similar upbringing to a lot of other Asian families. Very strict in certain ways. They want you to grow up to be a doctor or to excel in your studies. What do your parents do? Now they're retired because they're in their 70s, basically. Right. But um, I mean, they worked in assembly line work or factory work. It's not like they had an opportunity to to get an education and obviously have the jobs that they wanted. So they worked very hard for the opportunity that my sister and my brother and I could have. It's hard because you want to please your parents, but at the same time, you want to strive towards your dreams, right? So when I was younger, like in my teens, I really was into art and comic books. They were very much against that. They were just wondering, why are you daydreaming all the time? And then I kind of found fashion by accident with my sister because she would always plaster her walls with ads and clippings from magazines. And this was in the mid-90s. So there was a summer when she went away. Uh, my brother was living in California. So mm. she went over there and she asked me to record a program called Fashion Television. I'm sure you know that program. Yeah, okay, because I, I read about this too, about you. Was it fashion television or was it fashion file? It was fashion television first. My first foray mm-hmm. into seeing anything high fashion on television was Tim Blank's yeah. and repeat episodes of Fashion File yeah. on CBC. So I wish it was fashion file first. <laughs> but the reason why I was lured in by fashion television is just because the way they presented fashion, it was a very glamorous mysterious mm-hmm. world of interior design, architecture, supermodels and like mm-hmm. high gloss fashion. And the yeah. one episode that I recorded for my sister while I was while she was away was this one that was focusing on Gucci by Tom Ford. So right. this is when heroin chic was at its peak. So I was just sitting there and my eyes just totally widened. In Oatesville. In Oakville. Oakville. So in Oakville, that's how it all started. Um just as a teenager with big dreams and then also just from that moment of seeing this show and the way that Tom spoke about the models, like he yeah. was just very eloquent and you just felt seduced by the way that he described how he wanted to project men and women to look. So from that moment, it became an obsession. Like every day after school, I'd ride my bike to the library and kind of sneakily just go into a, a cubicle and kind of cut ads or clippings right. of the magazine and bring them home and plaster my walls or make So if the books. librarians chance upon this podcast, they're going to be like, so that was the kid that was cutting out yeah. all those ads. <laughs> well, I mean, I've, I've publicly told people, so it's... Right. I mean, it went to a good cause. Yeah. So <laughs> I never threw anything away. I kept everything, actually. So Do you still have those things? Yeah. I actually went wow. home a few weeks ago, and I found some of my collage books and my sketchbooks, and I actually posted a few things on, on Insta stories, and I was just right. laughing because the way that I... Obviously, when you're young, you have this yeah. idea of how women or men should be dressed, and it's a bit over the top. So, I mean, Tom Ford in yeah. the 90s at Gucci was all about over the top. Yeah. Well, like over the top sex and glamour. Right. And not like maximalism to the degree of like John Galliano, Dior, right. McQueen. Right. But for someone that's not, hasn't been introduced to fashion, it's right. it's quite an interesting world when you have these women, you know, their hair slicked back and they have smoky eyes and they're right. wearing their clothes a certain way. So from that moment, I just knew that fashion was a world that I wanted to be a part of. Yeah, I did my research, had a plan when I was young. I just knew I wanted to work in fashion. I thought I wanted to be a designer. 
So it was laid out when I got to high school, I wanted to intern for a designer in Toronto, um, this designer named Wayne Clark. So I went and I interned for him and I worked for him for two years. How old were you? I was 16. So, you know, for someone that's wrapping up school and then also trying to find themselves, you know, going to downtown Toronto is a way for me to escape and find, you know, those other people that you relate to. And how far was the city that you were living in to downtown Toronto? Oh, just a 20 minute drive. Just 20 minute drive. So I would take the train in. Right. Yeah. I guess it would be equivalent to people coming in from Jersey or or outside the city, right? You know, for a teenager with big dreams, you go to where you can find inspiration and being in a more metropolitan city made sense. And also be around people who, I guess, speak the same language as you, the cultural language. Like I I wrote a letter to this designer and he didn't, they did, I didn't get a response within a few days. And I thought that was just me being overly eager. And I kind of just went down there myself and I was like, oh, hi, I sent you this letter. They're like, we just got it. They're like, you really want this internship? I'm like, yeah. So then they gave it to me, which was really nice. It was a eye-opening experience because then I realized being a designer is really hard. <laughs> I think this is like an ongoing conversation I have with a lot of fashion friends and kind of lamenting about how outsiders often are like, mm-hmm. wow, you have the, we do, we have an yeah. incredible jobs, but there's a lot of hard work. Yeah, there's like manual mm-hmm. time invested. A lot of this, you don't even see your friends because yeah. The work can be very myopic. Mm -hmm. You're in this bubble. And what I remember working for Wayne Clark at the time was I was working on like quality control and like production and just having to push these racks up the garment district and then sitting there clipping threads. And I was like, is this the life that I want? You know, like this isn't what I imagined fashion to be. So then I thought, how do I get myself more into that Tim Blank's Jeannie Becker world where I get to go to shows? So I just thought, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. So I know that it's so funny how journalism now, like, it's just not the same. I'm not saying that I'm not discrediting the journalists now, but, you know, having these programs on TV, whether it's us in Canada with Jeannie Becker and Tim Blanks or on CNN with Elsa Clench, you know, like watching someone create a certain dialogue with all these different people in the industry. Like that's how I learned about fashion is listening to people critique and dissect, you know, shows. I totally agree. Yeah. It's interesting because you brought up John Galliano and your, that was my first kind of foray into Mm -hmm. fashion. My mom went to fashion school. We had magazines lying around the house all the time. But my first exposure to like high, high fashion Mm -hmm. was when I remember like on CBC after the news, like at weird hours, Fashion File. CBC News World. Yes. CBC News World, Mm -hmm. Fashion File would come on. And Tim Blanks, who's so like articulate Mm -hmm. and whip smart, was at these shows and was kind of like you said, like dissecting Mm -hmm. it digesting the show and like talking to the designer. That was my introduction to fashion. And that's why I fell in love with it right Mm. away. Did you tape everything? I didn't. No, I didn't. I went to three VHS. Oh, did you really? Machines, yeah. Because I just kept recording and rewatching everything. I knew what time it was on. It was on it like really, because I was on the West Coast. So I don't know what time it aired, like on the East Coast. It would air very strange times, like 6 a.m., 11 a.m. I would sometimes, yeah, catch it at like 11 Mm p.m. or like weird hours of the night. And they were often reruns. So a that was lot. the great thing. You never knew when it was going to come on. And when you did, you're like, oh. Yeah. And it, yeah. actually, in like a lot of the episodes, I would have memorized, mm. you know, like, oh, like now Jeannie's going to try to talk to like this celebrity and they're going to be really mean to her. And <laughs> like, or like Tim Blanks is going to do this and this and this. 
it's very interesting that we kind of had yeah. a similar path with fashion. It's, it's very similar with a lot of Canadians, actually, because having that, I mean, it's equivalent to now with kids in the internet and social media, like that's how they found fashion was through that or through celebrity culture. But for us, you know, we found fashion in a very true authentic kind of way because it's, it's nice to fall in love with fashion from watching how people dress. But I think what was really interesting with this generation, you know, watching programming is that you were really immersed in this world and you could see all the behind the scenes and it seemed more genuine and I'm not saying that this era of what we're living in is not the same, but it just felt like I just felt more educated and learned, and I learned so much just from watching Me those too. programs. Yeah, I mean, I was like a teenager, and yeah. I understood like who all the big designers were. Yeah. I knew Couture. I knew like what all the references were, mm-hmm. and it's a very different time. So back to when you were interning for Wayne. Yes. So you were there, and you were like. Maybe this is not the life that I want. Yeah, I just thought maybe not now, but maybe one day. So then I thought maybe I should be a buyer because then that will get me closer to product and I'll I'll be able to possibly travel abroad, go to shows. So where do you aim to be a buyer at? Holt Renfrew. Of course. Yeah. So for the non-Canadians, can you tell us what is Holt Renfrew? So Holt Renfrew is basically our major department store. It's equivalent to, I guess, our our Barneys or our Bergdorf Goodman, basically. It's very luxury. It's very, yeah, luxury. Obviously, there's competition now, but back then in 2002, it was it was the pinnacle. It's of, always just been Holtz. Yeah, Holtz, basically. Yeah. This was in 2002. Well, I was still working at Wayne's, but then I wanted to work in retail at the same time. So I applied at Clamonico for their seasonal Christmas staff, and I did a group interview. Failed that. <laughs> but then my next interview was at Holtz. The funny thing is I got the interview in the evening wear department and I was 18 at the time. So it seemed like I was going to get the job. But then I kind of said to the woman that was interviewing me, I'm like, I don't know if I could convince women to to buy evening wear for me. I'm only 18. So then she said, let me just send you down to accessories and we'll see how that works. So I went down to um, women's accessories and I interviewed with my manager slash my friend now. But she she was really funny because she's like, hello, darling. What designers do you like? And then I was like, uh, Gucci, Burberry, and I just named a few designers. She's like, perfect. Okay. Hired. And I was like, okay. So she wow. just, she just liked that I really enjoyed fashion or she just thought, I guess I had a certain level of taste, which is zero back then. <laughs> so she hired me and then I started working on the sales floor at Holtz. I was there for three years after that. And I eventually went to school for fashion merchandising as anybody does if they want to work in fashion, but I strategized that if I wanted to become a buyer, I was going to become a buyer at Holt Renfrew. So that's why I went to school and I worked at, on the sales floor and I eventually got an internship in the buying office. But then being in the buying office, I thought, oh gosh, here we go again. Is this what I want to do? There's a lot of Excel sheets, right? There's a lot of Excel sheets. There's a lot of politics involved. And everyone kept telling me like, oh, this is about 98% of the time your job, sitting in front of a computer looking at numbers. Going to the shows and showrooms is really nothing compared to all this. And I just thought, oh, okay, You're what like, next? What are fashion? What are you doing to me mm-hmm. here? Yeah. Where's all the my fashion are, fashion? Yeah, where is the fashion? And this was in 2005, and I just thought to myself, you know, like, how do I get myself immersed into that part of the world where I get to interact with people get to be closer to, you know, designers and photograph them. I don't even know. 
And I just kind of thought, oh, you know, this is the time when Japanese street style magazines were becoming a thing with Fruits magazine or Fruits the book. And, you know, Vogue Japan or Elle Japan. And I could see all these images of editors at shows. And I thought, oh, it'd be so much fun if I were to take this idea, but do it in Toronto and photograph people on the street and even people at parties. I kind of got a group of friends together and we just assembled this website called Jack and Jill, which was supposed to be a lifestyle fashion site. There was a lot of great reception to it, but then I got really bored. Bored in what sense? I kind of got bored of photographing or seeing the same people in Toronto. So it kind of got set to the side for a bit. I was still doing it, but I just felt like this isn't exactly what I was hoping for. Right. Because, you know, I was hoping for real like fashion. Magic. Yeah. I mean, it's it's it was great to see women wear, you know, a cocktail Gucci dress to an event, but it wasn't the degree of having that excitement of seeing a show or just being in that world, right? So when I decided I didn't want to be a buyer, I found this um Oh, I met this woman, Linda Latner, and she ran an e-commerce site called Vintage Couture. And she's like, oh, you know, you should come work for me and and you can also pursue what it is that you want to do on the side. So I thought that was a great job for me to have. So I got to learn about managing an e-commerce site and working with vintage clothing. And, and that was great for having a better understanding of the history of fashion. You call her your fairy godmother, right? Yes, I do. Because it was just nice to have someone that was so supportive, who was also your boss. And she eventually just said to me, you know, like, 2007, this was two years after working for her, you know, like you seem very passionate about what you want to do with this website. If you really want to go to Europe, I'll send you as a bonus, you know, you can go and photograph people at the shows. And I just thought, oh, how nice was that? Yeah, it was very sweet. So in 2007, I went to London first because this is when... Is this the, for the spring summer shows or the fall winter? fall winter, February 2007. So... This was at the height of this new rave moment when like House of Holland and Agnes Dean was the face that everyone was watching. And then also all these London designers like Christopher Kane or like Mario Schwab or. Uh, so there was a lot of buzz going on. There was a lot on. of buzz in London and, and everyone was partying at the time. Like everyone was dressing up like as if it was the eighties again. So I was wearing like Jeremy Scott or like multicolored Adidas shoes or their skinny cobalt blue jeans. So I was just really excited to be in London and be surrounded by people that, you know, were just from another world. Was that your first time in Europe? That was my second time in Europe, actually. I had gone the year prior to that, but it wasn't Fashion Week when I went. So just going when it was Fashion Week was pretty crazy. And also just having access. I just basically applied for a media pass because I was working for a Canadian newspaper at the Globe and Mail. No, 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 sorry. Not the Globe and Mail. The National Post. Can't get that Okay. So I was on assignment. How did you start working at the newspaper? Oh, I didn't actually work for the newspaper. I just freelanced for them because after my work with Jack and Jill locally, when I proposed the idea of taking pictures abroad, because I needed some kind of income, right? Not that it was income, it was freelance work. So Because I wasn't going to get any international work, so I just approached my local contacts. I went to London, and that was amazing. And then I skipped Milan, but I decided to go to Paris, and then that's when things really changed. How so? I realized that was what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. I mean, I was very lucky because Linda had had forwarded me a contact who was able to get me into some shows. But then in 2007, like it was just a much more different scene. Like there weren't hundreds of people waiting outside of a show trying to get in or waiting to have their picture taken. There's just, there were shows happening at the Hotel Westin or the Ecole de Beaux-Arts. These are just locations that are normal to us now, but you could just show up and there was like barely any security. So the first show that I showed up to was a Balmain show. So this is when Christophe Decarnin was having, just about to have his moment. So 
I just waited. And I remember, I still remember to this day, the, the KCD faces, they still work there. And they were very, I don't want to say guarded, but they were just, you know, they were letting some people in. And then finally, they just let a bunch of kids in at the very end. And luckily, I was able to get in. And I remember when I got in, the the Cure was playing on the soundtrack. And then all of a sudden, I didn't even know anything about Bowman at the time, because it hadn't become a thing. But all of a sudden, I started seeing Daria, Carmen Cast, Raquel Zimmerman, Every supermodel was walking down. I was like, what is this show? And then and I'm like, what is this soundtrack? And I was just like, oh, my God. I was like, is this what a real fashion show is? And my eyes were just like lighting up. And then after the show was done, I waited for everyone to leave. And I was taking their picture. Back then, I, I didn't know what I was doing. So I was just taking head-to-toe shots like everyone else was. So I was taking everyone's photo. And then as soon as the show was done, I went around the corner on Rue Montabor, which is a very small street. And it was raining. And I just started like dancing in the rain because I just thought wow, if this is what it feels like to be a part of real fashion, then sign me up. Like, cause I have to just come every season. So from that moment, I knew that I had to come to the shows every season because it was just such an uplifting experience just watching that one show. What a beautiful crystallizing moment in your <laughs> life, because I remember that show. I mean, yeah. I wasn't there, but I remember seeing the images and the silhouettes mm-hmm. and the vibe, you yeah. know, like the rock and roll, like, it was definitely a big moment in fashion. Yeah, it was the start of Balmania because Emmanuel Altz was working with Christophe and there was something brewing there. But people knew and I just obviously, because things hadn't been blown up on social media, like only the industry people knew. So it was just about to start. But it was, it was just interesting to be a part of that and see that happening. And also just seeing the type of editors that I was used to seeing on the Sartorius in person. I just thought, wow, they're just so much more chic because I just would only gravitate towards a club kid initially. But seeing all these editors, like I'd never seen Anna De La Russo or a Kate Lanefear or a Karina Reutfeld in person. I was just like in awe. And I just thought, oh, these are women that I definitely need to photograph because I just think that they would inspire so many people out there. So to sum it up, basically, that season, it was such an amazing experience. And I just thought no matter how much it's going to cost me or whatever I have to do to come back, I'll make sure I do it. So from that moment on, I always made sure I came back to Paris. And then eventually I started adding New York and Milan. And this whole time you were still living in Toronto. I was still living in Toronto, also working for Linda Vintage Couture. So I was juggling two different jobs, but just trying to push this career that was hopefully going to happen. So it took two years for something to happen. And also like, I didn't exactly find my footing right away. I just thought the way that I was going to break out was, oh, I'm going to take everyone's photo and I'm going to list exactly what they're wearing from head to toe, their name and what they're doing. Because I thought, you know, being a very detail-oriented person was the way that people were going to find out about me. And, like, I did, I was discovered by, like, certain magazines, like Vogue Korea or or Flair Canada. And they gave me a platform to have certain pages, which is great. But it wasn't enough, and it wasn't going to give me enough money to continue doing this. So I just thought, how am I going to continue sustaining this? Because it's a very expensive trip. Trust me. Yeah. Like I'm budgeting out my Paris, this mm-hmm. Paris trip with my assistant. And she was shocked. She was like, this is so expensive. Yeah. I mean, I, I even look back and think, how did I even afford this back then when I wasn't even working for anyone? You know, for someone new, you would Airbnb it or crash on someone's couch. I mean, I, I was very lucky, fortunate to have friends that let me crash at their place. But I remember when I came back, I was poor. There were some times when I couldn't even go home. Thankfully, I had a friend that would let me crash at their... Well, actually, no, they didn't know that. I was was sitting for them and watching their cat. But then I just had to stay there because I didn't have enough money to take the train home, like just five or six dollars, because I overspent going abroad and bought clothes that I didn't need. 
But I just thought this is the way to go. And then all those photos were going on to Jack and Jill. Yeah. So there's people that do remember what it used to look like. It was just all vertical head to toe shots. And if you ask certain people like Karen Issa or I don't know else who knows, but there's, there's people that do know about the old, old site. But then it took about like a year. And in 2008, I launched a different portion of the site where I was taking more candid photos. So, so these were more like detail shots of like shoes or, you know, certain details of a jacket or people in motion. So I just thought this was a bit more interesting because I kind of got tired and I was also very shy of always stopping and asking people to take their photo because you get very intimidated when people are running to shows and, you know, you ask to take their photo and they kind of glance at you thinking, oh, where's this going? You know? So I just thought, just take the picture. Cause I'd been watching everyone else for so long and watching Bill Cunningham. And I just thought, oh, you know what? I'm just going to take the photo. It's fine. It's kind of like being in nature. They don't mind. Yeah. You're just a, a nature photographer out yeah. there catching wild birds. Yeah. All these gazelles in their stilettos tiptoeing. Exactly. Yeah. So when I started doing that, then immediately there was this reception to it. People were just loving that. It was just a different voyeuristic point of view as opposed to just being very documented, straightforward, uniform shot. So then within a few months, I get an email from a mutual friend of ours, Declan Chan. <laughs> oh, Declan. Yeah, Shout out Declan. to Declan. <laughs> Shout out to Declan Chan. So he emailed me on behalf of Wayne Crawford asking me, do you want to photograph our spring-summer 2009 campaign? And I just thought, oh, come on, this is such baloney. Like, this isn't real. Like, there's no way anyone would want me to Lane photograph. Crawford is a huge department yes. store in Hong Kong. Again, very, very luxury, yeah. similar to a Barney's or a Bergdorf's. Yeah. Of the Asia Pacific. Right? Of Asia Pacific. Yeah. At first, I thought it was fake. And then I responded and he responded. And I was just like, oh, this is a real deal. I looked into it and I was like, oh, Inez Venu shot the campaign prior to this season. And I actually did a report on them in you know, sewing class in high school. So I just thought it was just so funny from them for them to go from an Esvenue to me. So I agreed to do it. And we flew to Paris um, in January 2009. Basically, they just really wanted to recreate my photos, but in the style of a campaign. So I thought that was kind of shocking. But I thought, oh, maybe I'm onto something because if he's responding well to it, maybe someone else will. And I just, I didn't even know how to negotiate a situation like this because I had never been poached to shoot a, a job as a photographer. I was always just taking photos as a freelancer. So that kind of thrusted me into, um, I mean, obviously I didn't have an agent. I had to represent myself and try to figure out how this was going to work. Like what kind of number do I throw at them? Or should I just call up some friends and ask, what does a photographer normally charge for this? And thankfully I got paid a lot of money that was able to give me a huge boost for the next two years, I would say. And without that job, I don't think I probably would have been able to afford continuing going. But it was shortly after that, that's when Style.com came along because um, the Sartorius had left Style.com and they were looking for a different person to shoot their street styles. So um, if you don't know Style.com, Style.com was... It's very different now. It's very different now. So before Vogue.com was the official Kanye Nast website, Style.com was everyone's Bible, basically. You would go there to look at all the collections and the reviews and images from fashion month, but you would always instantaneously start typing style.com every single time you went onto a computer because as a fashion person, that's what you would look at. A hundred percent. It was ingrained into your hands. Basically. Yeah. I even remember like the homepage, yes. you know, like the, the bars blue. on the left mm -hmm. and like the logo and everything. Yeah. 
I remember being in high school, like being in the computer lab and printing out images from style.com. So I had grown up with style.com. So it was just a shock that they reached out to me. Actually, funny story, before style.com had reached out to me, I was reached out by NYMAG The Cut. They had asked me to shoot their street style. So I'd agreed to that. But then the day after they reached out to me, style.com reached out to me and I was like, "Uh uh-oh, what's going on now? So I went to meet Nicole Phelps and Dirk Standen, the editor-in-chief at the time, and they said, oh, you know, we want to offer you this position where you'll be covering street style for us. And I just thought, oh, sweet God, no. I just agreed to NYMAG, and I'm like, I'm going to burn one big bridge right now. But I just thought this was well worth it because this was going to give me a huge platform. Sadly, I had to tell NYMAG, no, I can't. And they wanted to know who, and I said I can't because it's a pretty big deal. In September 2009, that's when I started working for Style.com. That was the start of this whole blogger phenomenon, because not because I started working for Style.com, but I think the press and designers started realizing, oh, there's a complete different side of digital media. Dolce Gabbana at the time was smart to embrace this new wave. So they invited me, Brian Boy, Garance, Dore, and Scott Schumann to sit in their front row, first at their D&G show, where they put us all together and they put computer screens in front of us. So I had never been invited to shows, so it's just a shock to be invited. And this is sitting front row. This is sitting front row. So to go into Dolce Gabbana, sit front row with a computer or a laptop sitting in front of you, it's kind of intimidating. I remember Scott and Garance feeling kind of, well, feeling very awkward thinking, what are they trying to do to us? Like, are we props? I mean, I didn't care. I was just like, this is really, really cool that I get to be inside of a show um, in Europe. So then days later, they have their Dolce show, thinking that they would probably have the same situation. So, I, I mean, I was obviously nervous. Um, I'd been shooting outside, and I was really, it was really hot, so I was really sweaty. So I come in, and I'm like, oh, the seating situation is not the same, but there's individual laptops placed in certain places. So I see Brian sitting two seats away from Anna next to Susie Menkez. And then I see another computer with my name on it with Hamish Bowles and then Anna one seat away. And I was just like, oh, gosh, I'm sitting in the American Vogue U.S. press section. What is going on here? Anna Wintour being the editor-in-chief of Vogue. Yeah. So I just didn't know how to react. And they wanted me to live tweet. So I'm sitting there with this laptop in front of me while everyone is sitting behind me, like all the U.S. press wondering, what in the world is going on? Why is this kid sitting here with a sweaty back at the Dolce Gabbana show? And I just was tweeting, like, what am I doing here? I'm sitting next to Hamish Bowles. And he kind of leaned over and asked, how do you tweet? And I was like, oh, I'll I'll tell you. (laughs) But that was the start of everything because from that moment I realized or you could see basically all the PR companies in Paris the week after inviting all these new people that in digital media, whether it was Brian Boy or Garance or myself. And I just thought, wow, fashion's finally becoming more democratic and things are changing. I don't know for the better, but let's see what happens. And every single time I got an invite, you know, I would take a photo of me and be like, look, I got a ticket, you know, because like I would always stand waiting outside hoping to get in. So it's just the change of something new, so. During this whole time, you were always still shooting the street style, like waiting for people outside shows. Yeah, so I was always waiting outside because for me, the reason why I enjoyed shooting street style was just because I loved how people would dissect clothes and trends off the runway and wear it their own way. And I felt, based on the photos from what I was seeing, that no one was really focusing on 
things like shoes or handbags or details. Like you said, it was like the full literal like outfit shot, like head to toe. Yeah. You'd always see a full shot, but you would never go zoom in on someone's accessory. And I thought accessories at the time were becoming more, uh, more spotlighted. So I just thought, oh, I should take more photos of these detail shots. And I think that's why Saw.com enlisted me because they felt that it was a more, it was more of a point of view under a microscope. So people just felt like it was more magnified and there was more energy in life in my photos. And um, I wanted to capture this experience of what it was like to be at the shows and to see how people dress without it feeling so in a very uniform fashion, just basically. Like a literal way. Yeah, exactly. So people responded really well to that. And I just took so much pride and joy and being the eyes for so many people going to style.com and wanting to see what it was like to be at the shows. Because the street style component provided people another opportunity to see what it was like to be at fashion month. So it's one thing to see shows, but then like what was happening outside the shows was just, this was the beginning where it was just going to become something bigger, but it just felt like what was on the runway was just as important as what was happening outside too. I think that was really, I mean, we've been seeing it in Asia for a long time, the importance of of personal style. Yeah. But I think until you, until Scott and Garance, of course, Bill, we didn't necessarily look at that, you know, in yeah. North America. It was more so like, okay, well, what's on the runway? Let's just like dissect this. Yeah. And like you said, clothing is just clothing until someone decides to put it on. I think that's like the most exciting part, yeah. right? And that's why I loved your images because women would literally mix like, you know, something like a super expensive, beautiful, like Balmain jacket with a pair of like vintage Levi's and a yeah. pair of stilettos. It was just that personal style. I think for me, that's why I was always like checking in on style.com yeah. to be like, oh, I wonder what people are wearing, you know, outside shows. It was more relatable and accessible because we were so used to looking at celebrities and paparazzi images, right? And we were fascinated by them. But I think people in fashion wanted something more real and authentic and seeing these people that were the unsung heroes, you know, like the the editors, which at the time were not well-known, the stylists. And I thought these were the heroes of our industry, so I'm going to take photos of them and put them more at the forefront. I mean, no one was ready for this moment that was going to happen, but I mean, everyone was welcoming with open arms because they thought, well, why not? You know, like a few photos here and there doesn't hurt, but I didn't think people realized that they were going to become iconic, iconic, you know, like they were known for their signature look, you know, whether it was like Taylor Tomasi who worked at Teen Vogue or Caitlin Fear with her um, arm full of Eddie Borgo bracelets. Everyone had a certain signature about the way that they looked. And when you would see these images of them on blogs or in Japanese street style magazines, there were pages devoted to them and they were dissected in terms of the way that they dress and the choices that they made. That's kind of why I think I became fascinated, but I know everyone else became really interested in fashion month street style. It was because it was just street style that we weren't used to seeing, which is what everyone generally used to see was oh, street style that was actually on the street. Whereas this is street style on steroids. Like you're seeing high fashion worn with high street clothing, but just elevated. And this seemed more interesting than what was on the runway, right? Yeah, yeah. I totally agree. Yeah. And how long were you with style.com? So that was six years. Six years. And you were exclusively shooting? I was exclusively shooting for style.com. Actually, next month marks the 10-year anniversary. Wow. I know. 10 years seems like 20 years in fashion years. I mean, I have a very good memory, but I can remember certain parts now of 
that time when I got the job, but I really wish I could relive a lot of it because I would have stopped and appreciated more what was happening. It was a very special time in my life where, you know, you just feel like the world is your oyster and you could do anything. And I, I wish I could go back and make smarter decisions about having spent less money on clothes and travel and because you know getting that job I just thought oh you know everything is going to explode from here and and it did I was able to get a lot of work after that but yeah it was just one of those moments where I wish I could go back and say be smarter Tommy so now we know if I if I can create a time machine that's what you would do yeah and you know something I think that's really interesting I think for people who aren't in it like us like sometimes when I look at videos of me, like my assistant takes a photo of me being photographed during mm-hmm. Fashion Week. It looks kind of crazy. It oh, looks, I love that photo you posted of you and Ami. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, it just, it looks insane yeah. almost. And when you started, I mean, there were established street style photographers, but there were not a huge amount of you. I mean, there yeah. were really only a handful of you at the time. Well, it wasn't really considered a real profession. No, it wasn't. It not was, at all. It was a ho- it was my hobby. It was a profession for the Japanese photographers. They were very devoted, by the way. I still look up to them very much to this day. Bill was doing it because Bill had been doing it for decades, and then Scott had been doing it. And then there was maybe a few others. It was like that for the first few years. Um, there were times at the beginning where I can actually remember where Phil and I, Phil O., it was just be the two of us like hanging outside some random show. It wasn't like, you know, a horde of photographers. And now there's now. literally like so many people. Yeah, like, there's hundreds of people. High anxiety. From like when you started in 2007 to what it is now, it seems like, okay, well, yeah, that's like over 10 years, but that's a very short period of time yeah. where every, it looks very, very different now. Yeah. So what are your feelings about that? I mean, I've read some of your feelings about it, but... <laughs> Why don't you tell me? Fashion to me now has been very molded by the introduction of the democratization of fashion and social media. So basically social media, it started with blogging and then obviously now with mobile apps like Instagram. It's fully changed fashion in a way where an industry that thrives so much on change now can't keep up with change because this format where designers used to show twice a year and then have two pre-collections, that's not enough anymore. And I feel like when you and I became interested in fashion almost 20 years ago. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) You know, like when McQueen and Galliano were at their peak, like designers had time to let their ideas simmer. And those were clothes on another monumental scale. You know, you just felt like that was real fashion. And I feel like what fashion is today has been hindered so much by this immediacy and need for product constantly being churned out. And I feel like the art of even the image, like an ad campaign, is not the same anymore. Like It just doesn't feel like anything is really well thought out. And there's nothing wrong with clothes that are just clothes. But I just feel like there's very rare moments now where we feel like you're experiencing real fashion. This is why I have you on here because I think we share very similar sentiments because having more or less been on the opposite side of the lens for like the last 10 years and knowing you and Phil and other street style photographers, like you say, I mean, fashion is a huge global commodity now and the whole idea of street style, which was your hobby, which, you know, started for many people as just wanting to capture something beautiful 
has also now been mm-hmm. so heavily commodified. Yeah. And sometimes I look around when I go outside shows, I'm like, I don't know. Literally every season I see more and more new like photographers and mm-hmm. I have no idea what they're shooting. I have no idea who they are. Yeah. You never know where your image is going. And the exactly. thing is they have every right to post it because that's how it works basically. And the thing is a lot of time they don't post a very flattering image. No, and, it's never flattering. Yeah. And you just question when you go to a show now, do you want to dress up and be photographed because you don't want your image out there? And then it's also being sold and people profiting off of you. And there's also this battle of street style photographers and then the subjects and then the street style photographers think, oh, you know, like these people shouldn't be using my image without consent or they should be paying me for it. But I'm like, but you're taking images of people that are dressed like a model for you and you're profiting off the sale of that. So you can't exactly take ownership or should you be taking ownership of this, you know? I mean, educate me here. Like, how does the whole street style, like, how, how do you sell your images? What are kind of the, the things involved in that? So I've been licensing my images, obviously, for 10 years. I signed with a licensing agency in 2010 because that made things a little bit more official as opposed to me doing it. So, you know, when you license your images, you know, there needs to be actual consent and there's a contract signed between a publication and a photographer, right? And the subject? Um, No. No. Okay. (laughs) Well, it depends what it's being used for. So if it's being used for, you know, an official campaign or for a book, yes, you would would need... Like for commercial usage? For commercial usage, basically. But for editorial usage, there wasn't. And also, in the case of Fashion Month, people knew that they were being photographed um, or people know that they're being photographed. That's why they come and parade in front of the show. Right. So that's how it worked then, and it still kind of works now. But then now people have this impression that, oh, yeah, you know, if you come to the show, of course I can take your picture, and I have every right to profit from this image because you voluntarily came and, and had your photo taken. But the thing is, if this image is being used for commercial purposes, like used for an e-commerce website or for an ad campaign, or for a campaign for hemorrhoid cream. I don't know. Like whatever it is. Yeah. Or even for smoking, like somebody emailed me about using an image of a very high profile um, editor and they wanted to use it for smoke, for a smoking ad. And I had to, of course, respectfully ask this person, like, I know you're going to say no, but someone wants to use your image for a smoking ad. And of course she said no, but at least I, you know, you have to ask, otherwise you will be sued for sure. But sorry, going back to what we were talking about, there's this issue, there's been this issue now with people coming and wanting to have their picture taken and then they find the source of the image or the photographer and then they post the image without crediting the photographer. So that angers obviously the photographer, which I totally understand. You should be credited for your work. And then obviously there's been photographers that have taken action and they, you know, they send a letter or they contact the person saying, you know, I should either be credited or I should be paid for this image. It's actually, it's also not just the subject. It's also there are brands out there or companies or magazines that think, oh, with social media, it's all a free for all and you can basically take anything out there and, and republish it. They think that there's loopholes that you can publish this image, but you're somewhat still profiting because your, your magazine or platform makes money. So yeah, everyone is basically losing at this point. It's really messy. Like I know two seasons ago, a very big influencer who will remain unnamed 
her photograph was taken by a street style photographer and then she used it mm-hmm. in a paid post on Instagram. And oh, didn't, yes, I remember that. <laughs> and remember, like, and didn't credit the photographer. Yeah. And there was like all of this like drama of being like, well, who's right? Is mm-hmm. the street style photographer in the right? Like, or is the influencer in the right? Yeah. It's complicated now. And for me, I, I've been asking myself, even with, you know, fashion month right before us and as much of a fashion lover as I, as I am, I'm like, and I get, you know, invites to very prestigious shows. I'm just like, do I really want to show up? No. (laughs) And be photographed. And like most people, I love going to Reesey. So a Reesey is literally that. It's a Reesey when you Reesey the runway collection. And there's usually a model there Mm -hmm. who will put any garment on for you that you can actually see the close up close. So that's, I don't know. I've been. uh, Yes, food. Like, especially with like really good brands. They have like (laughs) tons of water, usually a bathroom. If it's in the winter, it's nice and warm. Mm -hmm. If it's in the summer, it's got some sort of, you know, air conditioning thing going on. But yeah, it's something that I ask myself where I'm like, I think you said this somewhere where you know, fashion for you and like street style, it was originally a party and now it's like a rave. Yeah. And when it's I Coachella. Re- yeah, it's Coachella. And when I was reading that, I was like, that's exactly what this moment, I mean, I call fashion week Disneyland now. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's something that I grapple with. It strikes a chord in everyone where it just, you bemoan it and you feel like, Another show. Ugh. I have to go to the airport. Ugh. We sound so spoiled and, and bratty, but you have to experience to really understand. Like it is, it takes you out of a comfort zone, which is basically living a normal life. There are times even when I walk into a show, just trying to get into the show with my ticket and I can see people watching or just looking at you, but not intentionally looking at you. And I can only imagine what it's like for someone that's being photographed heavily, what it feels like to just constantly have that sound of like clicking. Right. And it's also... Over here, um, over here. Look over here, Vanessa, Vanessa. Yeah, exactly. No, uh, you've just triggered some PTSD. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's just, um, I think what Fashion Week does, it's almost like, almost what Instagram does to you, but it's in person. You know, Mm -hmm. like Instagram, you're always like, oh no, why did that image like did not get so many likes? Like, oh my God, no one's watching my IG stories anymore. Mm -hmm. I'm saying this very- Or how dare someone comment that? Yeah, like I'm saying this very sarcastically, but like I have heard, and I experienced this for myself and I know from other girls, during Fashion Week, you know, you're walking down the street and literally you see the faces Mm -hmm. of like street style photographers and they're just like so nonplus. They're just like, no, move. We're like, no, no, no. We don't want to photograph you. We want to photograph <laughs> the person behind you. So mentally and spiritually, yeah, it's an extremely big drain. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I don't know. Do you still enjoy doing street style? Yes and no. <laughs> well, I've decided to cut back. Um, I've noticed that. Yes. So <laughs> if you notice and everyone's noticed. Well, it's because some people are legitimately trying to look for you. They're like, I need to be photographed by Tommy Ton. <laughs> I always thought I would have FOMO, skipping out on certain cities, but I started about a year ago, I think. Or no, no, sorry. Last season was the first season. I cut out a season. So I cut out, sorry, a city. I cut out London. Well, I first started cutting off some seasons in men, menswear. Yes, there's a menswear. There's so many fashion weeks. There's so many fashion weeks. So not only was I covering the international cities for women, but I was also doing men's. So it it was just a lot. Like I was traveling six months of the year doing 
the typical cities and then also doing extra cities, whether it was Copenhagen or Sydney Fashion Week. But um, I made a conscious decision to say to myself, you know, like I've done it for so long. Not really, actually. In fashion years, it seems like it's been a lot, but... 12 years is not that long for someone working at a but job. But like at the pace that fashion is moving in at right now, like 12 moving. years doing the same thing in fashion. It's basically 36 years. Exactly. Because what we experience in 12 months is more than what the average person would experience in five years. The constant getting on a plane, going to this city, meeting so many new people all the time. And it's just a lot. And it's hard not, I mean, there are people that can handle it and I admire them so much that they are so headstrong. But then if you're a very sensitive, fragile, quiet person to go to fashion week, it's a very overwhelming experience and it feels very disingenuous and everything just feels really predictable. And not that there's anything wrong with designers dressing um, people to attend their show. I think it's fine, obviously. You obviously are dressed by brands too. But the thing is, it just feels so fabricated to the point where I don't feel like I'm finding the same inspiration that I used to, right? So that's why I don't feel like I need to do all four cities because I secretly did have FOMO about missing London last season. But I just feel like I, I've seen it all. I have enough for the book that I'm working on. Oh, you're working on a book? I mean, eventually I had to work on a book, right? Like, where were all these photos going to go? And everyone keeps asking, where am I? Where are my photos? You haven't posted them yet. Oh, I'm um, so excited. <laughs> but I just didn't want to do a typical photo book. Like, I felt like there was something more that had to be said. When is this book coming out? I don't know. I wish I knew. <laughs> it's been on hold but for so But that's great. I haven't heard. I didn't, like, read or hear from oh, anybody really? that oh, you're okay. working on a book. There have been, I've told some people, and then obviously I shouldn't have told them, because then they're like, so how's the book going? And I'm like, oh, it kind of got set to the side for something else. Yeah, I just kind of felt like standing around every day for eight to 10 hours for so many months, I just thought, you know, like, how is this going to feel even more special for me? And I just thought, you know what, let's just focus on the moments that matter more to me, which is, um, you know, obviously Paris is the most important city. And then, and then maybe I go to Milan, maybe just in the summer, not in the winter. I don't know. I just thought it's also very expensive. And, you know, when I decided to cut out London last season, I just thought, oh, I just saved myself several thousand dollars. And obviously, at I least. at least, and I also have always fronted everything from my own pocket. You know, obviously, I make my money back by getting jobs or selling images. But I just thought, you know, like, this is so nice staying at home with my dog. And obviously, with my new job, I just felt like I had put so much energy into something else that there was no way I could get on a plane and start shooting street style. And obviously people would have been like, why are you shooting street style after you just had a fashion show? So you now have a new project. I mean, it's not, you started as the creative director at DeVoe yes. in 2018. So I joined them two years ago um, in the summer 20, of 2017. Okay. My first collection that I worked under the brand for as creative director came out in 2018. So my first season was fall 2018. So And DeVoe was already a brand. Yeah, it, was it was already, already aligned. So it was founded by my partners, um, Andrea Sau and Matthew Breen, in 2016. It was initially a menswear brand, and they were friends of mine. Um, and I would go to their shows, and I would come visit them at the showroom and take a look at the clothes. I would do my own Reese and give them my feedback. After four seasons, I just thought, you know, like, there's so much potential here, and I saw that they wanted to do women's wear. And I also thought to myself, you know what? I've always wanted to do this for so long since I was a teenager, but it just takes so much work to assemble the right team, to find the right factories, have the right resources. And I thought, you know, I have nothing to lose. I should just volunteer myself to them as 
their new creative director. And I thought, you know, if they say no, it doesn't hurt. My ego will be bruised, but whatever. So I offered myself and they said yes, because they needed someone to come in there and kind of shake things up a bit and help them with this um, desire to do women's wear. Because I also felt like my experience as a photographer, I obviously I don't come from a background of formal training, but, you know, like I'd been watching how people dress. I have an understanding of how clothes are made and what fits and what looks good. So I thought that could be applied into this position because the clothes were very grounded in this idea of a, a uniform, and that was for men. And I thought that there was a lot of women that wanted to buy men's inspired clothing two years ago, and they still do now. But I thought that that could be applied to this new women's collection. So I immediately started working on that as a side project and still shooting street style. It took a few seasons for things to really pick up. It wasn't until a year ago that we officially launched women's, like a solo women's collection that we had a great reaction initially. So like Netta Porty picked it up and wanted exclusivity and we just were floored by that. Thankfully, you came to the presentation, which we were grateful about. It was at Morgan Stearns. So we just wanted to create this idea of a collection that was a bit more accessible to women of all ages or backgrounds or color. Because we just felt like, you know, there's so many clothes out there that are not reaching the true potential of their consumer or their demographic. And I feel like the real consumer out there, not to discredit, you know, our, this new generation, but I feel, I feel like the spending... F- power in luxury fashion is the baby boomers, basically. Women past a certain age, past maybe the age of 35, 40. So these clothes, we wanted to show them on women that would be reflective of our consumers. So that's why we like to have a casting that's very diverse. So from the moment we started, we casted a very diverse group of women with gray hair. Um, that they were real women. I mean, I was at the presentation. Yeah. It was interspersed with traditional models mm-hmm. and real women. You know, it wasn't gimmicky in any way because I feel, I mean, the word of inclusion, it's like another thing that's been wonderfully co-opted by fashion. Everyone wants to be inclusive now, you know, so. It's the age of, well, like we're living in this age of inclusion and diversity in fashion, but is it really genuine? That's a whole other podcast episode. But when I was, yeah, at that, at that first presentation, I was kind of floored by all of it. Just obviously the clothes were beautiful and they yeah. looked wonderful and the Thank women, you. but the women genuinely were real people, Yeah, you know? I liked the idea because obviously for me, I've always found it inspiring to find women as a street style photographer that were so comfortable in themselves that they wore what they liked and they aged so gracefully and beautifully and they made the clothes come to life. So I thought, you know, I should apply that to the models that we cast and I made sure that everyone that was casted enjoyed what they were wearing and that they would have a good time wearing the clothes. And I think that was our mission statement, definitely from that moment on to make sure that, yes, I'm going to use the word inclusion, but, you know, like I just wanted to be very inclusive of different types of women because that's the consumer that walks into Bergdorf's or Barney's. You know, it's not a girl that's 20 years old, you know, like a woman of a certain age wants to buy a double face cashmere coat or an oversized turtleneck, you know, like they're investing in real clothes. Did it make sense for another brand to be launched in this world where there's thousands and thousands of brands? No, but there are brands that have now fizzled or no longer around or the designers departed and there is a void for certain um, clothes that people are looking for. Rest in peace, Celine by I was just going to say, <laughs> like, are we talking about 
the Phoebe Philo. Yeah. I'm not saying that what we're doing is Celine by Phoebe Philo, but there's such a huge void after her departure because, you know, women that weren't even interested in fashion could rely on Celine as their backbone. You know, like they could go to Celine for an outfit to wear to a cocktail event or to wear, to find trousers that they can wear to go pick up their kids and run to a, a meeting in, you know, like these were just true grounded in reality clothes. So I think as much as I love being compared or. I mean, what you're doing is very, um, is very different. I think you're not trying you. to mimic. Yeah. I mean, obviously I'm, I'm like everyone else. Everyone's inspired by Phoebe and you want to set out to create clothes that are similar to that. But for me, the greatest research, in addition to shooting street style, has just been listening and communicating with different women and understanding what makes sense in their lives. And it's just funny living in Brooklyn and watching the women that, you know, push their kids around in their strollers or, uh, or that run to Trader Joe's, just seeing how women dress in an everyday life. It makes me think more and more what makes sense in terms of what type of a day dress would a woman be looking for or what fabric makes sense for them. You know, it's just little things like that. And I try to make sure that what we do is very mindful and thoughtful of, of a real woman as opposed to a model, like a fantasy, basically. Yeah, I was um, in your showroom recently to check out the resort, yes. right? And then I tried on this jacket and I was just like so glad that there was an inside pocket yeah. because... And then this is something again that I, you know, that my friends and I, that we talk about, it's just like, why does nobody make a jacket with an inside pocket? <laughs> but in all men's jackets, whether it be a blazer or whether it be, you know, like a cat, anything cat, everything has an insular pocket. Yeah. And these are like the small details that I think someone would get it by now, mm -hmm. but they haven't. Yeah. So I think there's definitely a space, right? for someone to come in and to offer the classics, but with a bit of a spin on it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's what I try to set out to do is just create a wardrobe that's an offering to whoever wants to take it as an option. As it's, not, I don't think of it as real fashion. Like these, I mean, I would never compare myself to the people that I look up to, you know, like, I mean, I, I'm even just gobsmacked that like people call me a designer. I just think of myself as Yeah, how a is that? I mean, because like you you were saying that that was like when you were collaging and you were putting those things together, you're like, well, yeah, I want to be a designer when yeah. you were like daydreaming and fantasizing. I have been reminiscing a lot. So okay. how has that been? I mean, it must like, okay, I can tell you for me very anecdotally when I was, when I was really young and f I first started like watching movies, I remember I watched Sleepless in Seattle mm -hmm. as a kid. So I'm like, okay, one I day, I know me too. <laughs> I just, you know, like it's such a, over it's, over it's a guilty pleasure, yeah. but I love that movie. And I was like, one day I'm going to move to New York. <laughs> and I remember flipping through magazines and I always wanted to work in fashion. So yeah. I sketched as well. And I was horrible at sketching. I'm like, well, can't be a designer really. You know, I can't yeah. sketch. One day I'm going to, you know, spend a lot of time in Paris. And one day I'm going to be on the cover of a magazine. That happened. Like as a child, you, you think of all of these things because you're not, you haven't lived life yet. Yeah. Right. And having ticked these things off on not even taking it off, but just being like, whoa, like this is the life that I've always wanted yeah. when I was like a child. And I mean, here, now, here you are now and you're like sitting front row with people that you've admired from afar. You know, these yeah. are demigods in our worlds, right? Editors of magazines and stylists. And now you're a designer. 
Yeah, like, it's, it's so weird. But then I, I pinch myself and I and I tell myself, you manifested this because you wanted it so badly and just soak it up and stop, you know, drowning in your anxiety sometimes. Because <laughs> I always worry like, oh, what do people think of this? Or well, they must think, oh, God, he's really reaching for the stars with this. Like another one who thinks he can do something. And But I, I mean, the truth is in the sales like or the fact that we can sell to you know, certain department stores or retailers. I think if it was just a one-off thing, then obviously it would show that I'm not. But I think you can just look at your career. You've never really like, I was writing, you know, my notes about this, this conversation earlier. It's like, we live in this era where selling out now is actually becoming cool. And I know so many, I mean, colleagues, and again, this is not from a place of judgment, but seeing people do things where I'm like, oh, that's kind of interesting. Like I thought this was someone like you didn't want to work with Mm -hmm. and now you're doing this. And if I look at your career since, you know, the beginning, there's never been a moment like that for me. Like looking. You don't think so? I definitely feel like there are moments. Well, I mean, like not... Like, I've done things, too. Like, look, (laughs) this is a safe place. Like, we need to get paid. But, like, not to the point where, you know, you're reveling in the Mm -hmm. fact that you've had to sell up. Trust me. Like, I have been in moments where I'm like, oh, my gosh. Like, I've dug myself in too deep. Mm -hmm. And I've always tried to balance that, you know, with producing things of substance. Yeah. And that's kind of what I've always kind of gotten from you. You know, there's never been like, oh, like I want to be super famous. Like it's always been like you're there, you're doing the work yeah. because you genuinely have this love of fashion. I've always considered myself a fashion enthusiast before anything, just someone that really just loves fashion. And I think anyone who's passionate about anything and in any field that they set out to do, if you really love what you want to do, I don't think you need to have the proper formal training or skills. I you totally know? agree with you. And I think in this industry, particularly, it's not brain surgery. I mean, I'm not discrediting the people that work hard and go to school, but what we don't know is a lot of the designers at these houses, whether it's Eddie Slamane and Celine or Micha Prada or Ray Kawakubo, they're not sketching or making the patterns themselves. Like they are creative directors that lead a team of people with a certain vision and that's just how it goes. I always liken it to, it's like the maestro, the orcs, yeah, orchestra. Absolutely. You're the, the very front, the conductor, yeah. sorry. You're like, you're not playing the flute. Yeah. You're not like on the violin, but you're there and you're bringing everything. all of these things together. And as the role of a creative director and as a designer, you have been a consumer and also producer yeah. of culture for so many years now. Stepping into this role, for me, looking at your career, it's a natural kind of transition. Thank you. And now that you're in it, you know how you were saying earlier with all of your um, interning experience mm-hmm. and then like your experience at Holt where you're like, ooh, I don't know. Like, is this fashion? It all paid off. So now that you're in this role as a designer, does it live up to that fantasy you had as as a kid? Maybe it will. Maybe May- it will. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think w- what lived up for me was obviously my career as a photographer because meeting designers and working with them, that for me is the best reward because, you know, like when I was younger, like everyone else, we were obsessed with Nicolas Chesquier at Balenciaga. So then when (laughs) I got reached out by the team at Louis Vuitton to work for Nicolas for a few seasons, I mean, this wasn't really heavily publicized, but I was shooting behind the scenes and to watch someone you looked up 
to for so long. It was just, I was, I just had to pinch myself and think, am I going to the LV headquarters to watch Nicola work on fittings? This is crazy, you know, or just meeting Tim Blanks and working with Tim Blanks and then becoming friends with Tim Blanks. Like that was just everything. I'm still way too nervous to go up to Tim Blanks. <laughs> he's very, I mean, he's, you'd be so surprised how easygoing he is. He loves horror films. He, his favorite movie is White Chicks. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I've sat, I've actually sat front row next to him before. And you froze. I, I was just so nervous because I, you know, I, I literally have like memorized episodes of Fashion yeah. File and I like idolized him. Yeah. So it's still for me, like, it's He's still, still that person. Yeah. I'm still like that kid in yeah. the living room watching Fashion File. I still 11. think of him like that. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, as, as you asked, it's not exactly what I thought it would be, but I, I mean, I think that's good because I, if if it was going to be all about glamour and like parties and champagne and, and limos, then like, where's the true reward of all that? You know, like hard work pays off and it makes you feel good about yourself. And the fact that I go in five to six days a week, I'm very invested in fabric choices or sitting in the fittings or making sure that the proportions are right. You know, everything has to be perfect, you know, because obviously it's a team relies on me, but also it's, you know, my, my reputation and, and people will think differently of me if I just slap my name onto a role, you know? Yeah. I think that's why it's nice when people call me designer because I'm like, yeah, I guess I am because, you know, it's, it's a collaborative effort, but everything comes from me and you just have to lean into it. Yeah. You just have to lean into your, your creative potential and, and what you're doing because I mean, again, it's hard because you don't, we don't really have a lot of references of like people who've gone down my path or your path. Whereas like other people, they have reference. They're like, Oh, well, I know a doctor. Like he's doing great things because of X, Y, and Z. But you know, creative director, like that is such a broad creative director, designer, photographer. Those are such broad things, right? Though you basically created more or less, you know, several of these careers completely on your own. Yeah. I mean, we're just very lucky in our industry that we can wear multiple hats, right? Whereas you meet someone that works in a different field and they're like, oh, what do you do? And you're like, oh, I'm a creative director. And they're like, what is that? I know, I know, I know. Like every time I tell people that too, they're like, we don't really get it. And I'm like. So what do you, do you make clothes or do you, like you tell people? I, I just don't understand. Like, I think even my parents don't fully understand. I yeah, mean, so what do your parents think about all this? I mean, they know that I work with a brand I design clothes now, which they think it's great. But I think it's not until they see it, like, in, like, I don't know, El Vietnam or... But that is like, but that's, that's how like parents are, right? Especially like with immigrant parents there, they just don't really believe in it or they don't see it until, um, it's it's mass, which is very mass. Okay. So the last question Mm -hmm. for you, and this is something that I ask myself often, we've just kind of detailed how very lucky we are to work in the fashion industry, but it's hard and it's getting harder. You know, it's, the more businessy it has become, the more corporate fashion has become, it's become more grueling for everybody. Yeah. So why are you staying in fashion? <laughs> what keeps you in it, fighting for it? It sounds, so everyone can use the term that they love fashion very loosely. Like we all love fashion, of course. We're obsessed with fashion. We love clothes and we want want to be part of this world, but 
I think when you really, really love something, it doesn't matter what time of day or how hungry you are or or how broke you are. You're willing to do it f- for the sake of loving something. And I think, yes, I'm I'm not pessimistic. I'm just a little bit jaded some way in some ways. I think you're a realist. I mean, yeah, I I'm think a realist. you I and that's why I really have to commend you because you're one of the rare people in the industry who are really calling it for what it is. Yeah. And I think we need to have this conversation. But on the other hand, there's been so much like of me being like, I wish I just didn't love this as much as yeah. I do. And I always joke to my friends, you know, I'm always like, you know, I will have transcended the physical realm <laughs> and basically reached nirvana when I'm no longer excited by a sale or when I'm <laughs> wow, no longer, when I'm no longer excited by finding like a rare Celine piece on best. I'm like, that's when you know Vanessa has transcended the physical realm because like by me saying that it's basically saying no matter what I do, you know, mm. no matter how much yoga I do, no matter how many intellectuals I surround myself with, I'm never able to shake off this. Again, you know, like that excitement that mm-hmm. kind of starts from my heart where I'm just like, I don't need to eat for the rest of the day because yeah. I just saw something mm-hmm. mind blowing. Yeah. It's food for the soul, basically. It is. So, yeah, I think sometimes you just have to, you really have to stop and reflect and think, how lucky am I? Don't forget that teenage person inside of you that just would get so excited even by the sight of a new magazine on the newsstand. You know, it's just, there are so many worse, worse things that are happening in the world. If I were to complain, it just makes no sense, you know, and obviously I can make a conscious decision to live a different life and, and just quit fashion. Like a lot of people in the industry have quit fashion because they've had enough and they're working in a different field that's somewhat related to fashion. But I, I completely understand where it, it just doesn't feel the same and they're not getting out of it or they're just not making enough money. But I just don't think uh, my time is done yet. I mean, I'm only starting a new chapter in this career, I'm only 35. I mean, that's old to some people, but it's not old. I know, I know, but like, obviously, to this newer generation, like, you know, they don't know who I am, and they're like, "Oh, you're 35." Yeah, I mean, I think I'm experiencing something different personally and professionally, and it's nice that. Um, and now I'm living in New York um, more full time than I used to, and I have a dog. I'm really excited for you, Tommy. I feel like you're really growing up. <laughs> yeah, I'm in my mid 30s. I'm really excited to see. What's going to happen with DeVoe? I mean, this book of yours and all of these other ways that you're sharing, you know, your creative stuff with thank the you. world. So, yeah, I'm really excited. And thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. It's been so fun to sit down with you and like sit down with a contemporary who sees the woes of fashion, but that also recognizes that we work in one of the most incredible, if not the most incredible industry in the world. We're very lucky. So long live fashion. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So that was my conversation with Tommy Tan. I was very unexpectedly moved by this conversation. I, I really didn't see it coming. Having this conversation with Tommy was almost like walking along memory lane. I mean, the fact that both of us grew up in Canada, we both idolized Tim Blanks of Fashion File and had kind of 
a similar intro to the whole fashion industry via blogging. I really hope that you guys enjoyed this conversation and that you learned new things about myself and Tommy. And if you want to give a shout out to Tommy, letting him know that you heard him on Vanessa Wants to Know, you can reach him at his handles below. And please, please, please check out his collection. It's just that good. His DeVoe collection, that will also be in the show notes. And last but not least, I know I ask this every episode, but if you like us, if you enjoyed this conversation, make sure you subscribe, make sure you rate us five out of five. So Vanessa wants to know can get into more ears of people out there. So again, thank you so much for tuning in. It really means the world to me. Until next time, this is Vanessa for Vanessa Wants to Know.